Tony Awards are sponsored by DuPont, making dependable chemicals that are a part of things you use every day. You and DuPont, there's a lot of good chemistry between us. Hello, welcome back to My Little Tonys. Welcome. Today we're going to finish up the 1980 Tony Awards. I'm Anna. And I'm Tim. This is the first time that we're ever recording at night. We usually record in the, you know, late morning, early afternoon. So let's see if anyone can spot a difference (laughs) for more low energy than normal. So like a big running theme in the season was both themes of nostalgia and musicals about showbiz. And, you know, we talked about how, like, Evita and Barnum really pair together, but I saw a lot of people comparing Barnum and A Day in Hollywood, A Night in Ukraine, A Night Mm -hmm. in the Ukraine. Yeah. Um, So I think that one, the Venn diagram really overlaps in a bunch of different ways. Like, depending on how you want to categorize them, I feel like Evita is the true outlier. But I think Evita also has in common that it's very, like, cinematic, you know, because Mm -hmm. A Day in Hollywood, A Night in the Ukraine is, like, a tribute to to classic Hollywood, and I think that it shares that in Evita, like that cinematic sensibility. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I feel like a day in Hollywood, a night in the Ukraine, a musical double feature, <laughs> it's full title, and Sugar Babies like rely on a lot of previously written music, not exclusively, but overwhelmingly so. Let's see. So we have, we're just going to blaze right through all these because they don't really need a ton of analysis. A Day in Hollywood, A Night in the Ukraine, opened May 1st, 1980, closed September 27th, 1981, nine previews, 588 performances, book by Dick Vosberg, music by Frank Lazarus, lyrics by Dick Vosberg, directed by Tommy Toon, choreographed by Tommy Toon and Tommy Walsh, and it featured many, many songs that I'm not going to... Wait, is this? Yes. I think that they had rewritten some of the lyrics. Hmm. I'm not entirely sure... Well, it featured a lot of songs from many people. It was uh, this and Sugar Babies were both jukebox musicals. Oh, maybe the music and lyrics are for the second half. Oh, that, no, mm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, but also Jerry Herman did write like three, at least three original songs. Yes. So the first act, A Day in Hollywood, is a review of classic Hollywood songs of the 1930s performed by singers and dancers representing ushers from Grauman's Chinese Theater. The second, A Night in the Ukraine, is loosely based on Anton Chekhov's one-act play, The Bear, and is presented in the style of a Marx Brothers movie. I cannot believe they didn't get the rights from the Marx Brothers. They just thought that the First Amendment would protect them. Yeah, it's actually like they are doing like they are the marx brothers and they they did get sued by the marx brothers and they didn't shut the show down but they do have to pay more or pay royalties to their estate rightfully so yeah i can't believe that so this was really considered a triumph for tommy toon i feel like i can't really think of a lot of other musicals two act musicals where the two acts are completely unrelated like this like i know it gets talked about a lot with um when they were working on passion and muscle to do that Mm. but i can't i don't know how many others are there that actually that they did that the one thing that like comes to mind and that reminded me of this is like in between candide and west side story Oh, right. Trouble in Tahiti? Yes. It was like three acts. A Tennessee Williams play, Trouble in Tahiti, and then like I think a dance. 
component but i don't know it kind of seems like a recipe for disaster (laughs) yeah and i think it's funny like critics were really split on which half they preferred like some people were like the first half is really cute and then the second half is just like not as funny as the marx brothers and then some people you know had the opposite view but it is kind of interesting because i was just reading a preface to an anthology of tina howe's plays and she this was kind of like her period of prominence she's you know a contemporary playwright who has had more success off Broadway than on and she talks about like one of like the earliest influences for her as like a playwright was Marx Brothers Um, and it is so interesting because I think that like while the Marx Brothers their art is cinematic I think that it's more about the people than like the actual art of the cinema yeah no totally so Priscilla Lopez won a Tony one of the best featured actor Tony for playing she played Harpo the Harpo Marx character in the second half. I'm real happy it turned out like this. Oh, oh, it's a circle. I'm into circles. Our show is into circles. It had to be good. Um, a circle is perfect. It's round. It's It's got no rough edges. And that's what this experience has been. It's been a perfect theatrical experience for me. And it's funny because, you know, we just watched the In the Heights Mm-hmm. documentary and they talk to her and she's like well everyone thinks I won my Tony for a chorus line but actually I won it for so it seems like she's a little mad that she she's still mad that she didn't win for a chorus line but there's a funny profile of her where they talk about how like post a chorus line she kind of had like the Donna McKechnie character in a chorus line experience where she like moved out to LA and thought that you know her <laughs> career was gonna happen and then she you know wasn't working and then she came back to New York and and got this role which I thought was kind of funny you know that kind of happened with Bernadette too you know I think it happens to a lot of people it's like come back <laughs> we appreciate you here I liked this is like a very minimalist production like the cast album only has a piano mm-hmm. accompanying it And this scene, this, like, I think it was mainly seen as a big accomplishment for Tommy Toon that he was able to pull off this kind of, like, weak material. Yeah, in the review, um, this actually kind of summed it up, and some examples are given afterwards. Mel Gassau says in the Times, However, the evening's top billing unquestionably should go to Tommy Toon as director and choreographer. Mr. Toon is the toe-tapping Broadway heir to Busby Berkeley. What his predecessor did with 50 dancing girls and a soundstage he can do in cameo with four feet. In several senses, the high spot of the evening is a number called Famous Feet. Far above the footlights, on a ribbon-thin catwalk of a stage, we see only the dancing feet of Nikki Harris and Albert Stevenson. Clattering their heels, the dancers merrily impersonate a cavalcade of stars. Judy, Charlie, Fred, Marlena, and even Mickey and Minnie. It is as if they are light-footed puppets on strings. For Mr. Toon, the idea is a small miracle of theatrical inventiveness, and it provides a perfect comic counterpoint to the real, (laughs) R-E-E-L, life on the main stage below. So for their number... Didn't they do the, like, production code blues? Yeah, I can't remember what it's called. (laughs) They did... Doing the production code. Um, (laughs) Which, actually, I think should be incorporated into film history. Yeah, I think it's... I thought it was super fun. It's just, you know, kind of a tap dance of the, the Hayes Code... Of all of the things that were banned, all the things you couldn't say and do once uh, once censorship took hold in the, what was it, in the 30s? Mm-hmm. No approval shall be given to the following words or phrases. Alley cat, apply to a woman. Tomcat, apply to a man. Broad, apply to a woman. Tart, apply to a woman. 
Constitution goose in a vulgar sense. You can't say in your hat. You can't say hold your hat. You can't say dirt. You can't say nuts. Except when meaning crazy. Like when, when I was watching the Tonys, I was like, are they really? Is this really what they're doing? And then I was like, they are, and I love it. <laughs> okay, let's do Sugar Babies. So Sugar Babies, surprise hit of the season. I would say. Yeah. Sugar Babies opened on October 8th, 1979 and closed August 28th, 1982. After 1,208 performances, it was conceived by Ralph G. Allen and Harry Rigsby. Sketches were all based on traditional material by Ralph G. Allen. And this also featured a wide array of source songs. Yes. Yeah, we don't need to read all that. <laughs> yeah. So it was basically just a burlesque review. But this guy, Ralph G. Allen, who put it all together, I found his obituary. And it was actually, it's actually kind of noteworthy because I don't really know. Maybe like Bring in Defunk is like kind of similar to this in some respects, but he was just a theater historian who traveled around the country and interviewed all these old burlesque mm -hmm. comics and performers and you know had hours and hours and hours of interview and like collected all their sketches and stuff and he kind of got to this junction point where he was like either I was going to write like a huge book or just turn it into a show and I think that shows some really creative scholarship yeah I mean it's like I think a show demonstrates the appeal of this much more than a book would because it's you know about performance so i think the reason it was a surprise hit was that it was sort of a fun frothy sugar yeah. <laughs> you know piece of sugary candy so this is from more opening nights on broadway who would have thought that broadway was ready for an old-fashioned burlesque review featuring two faded old movie stars harry rigby that's who Starting with a bunch of moldy sketches compiled by college professor Ralph Allen and the not overly distinguished song catalog of Jamie McHugh, Rigby keenly tossed Mickey Rooney and Ann Miller into the mix and out came a hit. Sugar Babies pretty much illustrated why burlesque was dead and gone, but there's no accounting for taste, and those unpredictable audiences decided to embrace Mickey and Ann and the whole candy corny lot. Old-fashioned, non-adventurous theatergoers were starved for something inoffensive to counteract the concurrent Sweeney Todd, the best little whorehouse in Texas, and Evita, not to mention Ballroom, Platinum, and King of Hearts. And this Tony performance made me extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, the first time I watched it, I did not like it at all. And then it kind of ruined me a little bit. You know, I think, like, those two could really both sing their own custom I'm Still Here's. Yeah. I would like to hear them. Well, she she played Carlotta in the 1998 oh. or 2001. 2001. Oh, right. I, I for, well, I want to hear one specifically about her life. <laughs> I found out that she, her, she was born... Her birth name was Johnny because her father wanted a son. Like, they both have these crazy lives. Like, he started working at 16 months old, was, like, his first stage appearance. And Walter Kerr is, like, he's as energetic as he was at age three. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. Um, and she has a very funny quote where she's, like, people have become used to shows with messages or shows about dope or deformity, like the elephant man. This is none of that weird stuff. Sugar Babies is just for laughs. The world needs that right now. She wishes the show weren't described as burlesque. Many critics think it means bumps, grinds, and tassel twirlers, she explained. 
We're doing 1900s burlesque. It didn't get cheap and sleazy till the 40s. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Something that was interesting about this show is that it went on a five-month, five-city tour before hitting Broadway, and it seemed like a really tough experience for everyone. They were going through tons of changes. It was just like a really tense environment. Um, Mickey Rooney was making his Broadway debut at 59, even though he had been working since he was a literal baby. Um, and she was... Obviously a famous dancer, but famous in the movies, not so much for her stage work. It also seems like a show like this. It seems like it could really run into so many problems because there really isn't anything kind of moving it forward. Like in one of the reviews, they were like, and then in act two, and I'm like, oh my God, there are two <laughs> acts of this. <laughs> like that must be exhausting. It ended up, it toured with Carol Channing and Robert Morse, but it closed very quickly because I think it just like... Something about the two of them, and especially Mickey Rooney, I think it was really like the Mickey Rooney show. Mm -hmm. I think like without him, it just didn't work. Yeah. And I think, you know, similar but not similar to I Do, I Do, it's like you just are going to have a good time seeing those two legends. Yeah. Hey, also, just like it was funny. Um, there was like this piece about like how it's sort of uncanny that these two stars of yesteryear are like being brought back in this vehicle from that's like nostalgic for a time before they were even really on the scene yeah but just hearing about like some of the sketches it would be like you know Anne would come out and you know be singing like a really sad song or something and then mickey rooney would be like hammering on the side of the stage he's just like <laughs> and like going to the audience and ask someone if they needed their seat fixed it's like oh my god <laughs> i yeah i feel like the 70s is like the latest possible time that you could get away with that <laughs> <laughs> oh, the one interesting thing that I was reading the script a little bit, and there was a note that in burlesque, commonly, um, the actors' names are also the characters' names. Mm. So, like, if you do a production of Sugar Babies, the two main characters will be Mickey and Anne. They'll be Mickey and Anne? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say that they're going to be, like, your name. Oh, I guess you could, in the script, they were Mickey and Anne, but, like, they also make the note that if you want to change it to... I see. That would be so funny if Carol Channing and Robert Morris were, like, calling each other Mickey and Anne. <laughs> uh, maybe that's why it closed. I used to walk in the shade. used to walk in the shade. With my blues on parade. With her blues on Moving along. So going back to the nostalgia theme, this was a season that had three big revivals that all performed. There was also a Most Happy Fellow revival, but I don't think it made a lot of waves besides getting... Um best actor nomination yeah but frank rich said that that was his favorite event of the season interesting yeah. well they didn't even have it in my more opening nights on broadway book so <laughs> so um oklahoma it got mixed reviews it got a really positive review from the new york times but other people said that it felt really like overly it was funny reading it now everything i read about oklahoma is like filtered through 
this current revival. And Howard Kissel from Women's Wear Daily was like, you know, Oklahoma's a great show, but this production is so like overly like cutesy and corny that like you can't really see. Oh, and it was actually directed by William Hammerstein, Oscar Hammerstein's son. And he said he has staged the revival of Oklahoma as if it were as coy and dumb as very good Eddie whatever that is. (laughs) His father's book has dated considerably, but it has an emotional honesty underneath its corny words. Even the beautiful songs are undercut by the cute way they are sung. So, you know, too bad uh, he didn't make it to see the 2019 revival. And Very Good Eddie is like a Jerome Kern show from the turn of the century. (laughs) Both Oklahoma and West Side Story had some of their original creative team come back. In this case, Agnes DeMille came back in restaged her um, original dances. And Richard Rogers, after having a very rough 60s and 70s, finally, because this Oklahoma did become a hit and he died two weeks after it opened, so he had one last triumph in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, maybe the only other thing worth noting is that the Ado Annie and Will Parker were played by Harry Groner, who we've mentioned before, who plays my favorite Buffy villain and who I also saw in Spam a lot. And Christine Ebersole was Ado Annie. Yeah, and she, I listened to the recording and I'll say one thing, it sounds like any other <laughs> recording of Oklahoma before this one, but she was very sweet. <laughs> and all these revivals perform and they're all so good. They are really good. I would have seen any of them. Don't dance all night with me story (laughs) so west side story so this one again like agnes demille jerome robbins came back but this one had really mixed reviews here let's go back to opening nights on broadway has really proven to be a good resource for this because they it has very good like little summaries of what's what so he writes west side story unquestionably rests high among broadway's most perfect musical list here we had the original creators come together to assemble the definitive production No money problems this time. No anxieties as to how the innovative combination of ballet and theater would be received. No question as to whether Bernstein's turbulent roiling rhythms would be too esoteric for popular acceptance in the hit parade. Faced with heartily welcoming audiences and and unalloyed adulation, this West Side unaccountably fell flat. Despite everything the show had going for it, despite the actual presence of the great Robbins himself, instead of the usual assistance dispatched to recreate his work, the great West Side story was simply dull. No spark. That's what it was lacking. But don't blame the material. And if you look up the poster for it, it has these incredibly like sultry, smoldering headshots of Arthur Lawrence, Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim, and Jerome Robbins. Because it really is like the creators are the stars of this show. Because by this point, (laughs) they were, you know... Mm-hmm. Of course, legendary. It's actually funny because there's these four rectangular headshots side by side, and it looks like a scruff grid <laughs> 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 or like a grinder grid. Oh, yeah. Daddy's only. So despite kind of the mixed reviews, Debbie Allen and Josie de Guzman, who played Anita and Maria, both got really good reviews. And they have like a little feature on the two of them in the New York Times. And Josie de Guzman, who is Puerto Rican, she mentions 
like Rita Moreno in the movie, they made her darken her skin to play Maria, which is so messed up. Like, I can't believe that that keeps happening. Yeah. I don't know. And Debbie Allen is black. Yeah. <laughs> Debbie Allen is black, but she is an excellent Anita. And also excellently dressed at the Tony Awards. Accidentally dressed. Excellently Ex- dressed. Excellently dressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and she also, I want this to come up because they describe the outfit she's wearing in this article and it sounds amazing. There are like a few different videos of her doing Anita online and she's like, just like this little elastic string bean. She's just like such an amazing dancer mm-hmm. and has such like an interesting body and energy. She also mentioned that when she was growing up in Houston, it was segregated and she wasn't allowed to see West Side Story because the theaters didn't allow black people to go in there. Mm. So Miss Allen arrived for her interview wearing a fox jacket with free swinging skins, a knit dress in fire engine red and shiny cowboy boots to match. Oh my God. <laughs> Hell Yeah. So they do America. She fucking kills it. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> when I will go back to San Juan, when you will shut up and get gone, everyone there will give big cheers. Everyone there will have moved here. Stop it. Everyone. And the last one is creepy-ass Peter Pan. Yeah, I'm glad (laughs) this doesn't happen as much anymore. (laughs) I mean, I grew up watching the, I guess it was the Mary Martin version. We had some version on VHS. I think it was Mary Martin. I was really obsessed with it for a while. Um, Ooh. Um, But this is a Sandy Duncan edition. Um, did not go over quite as well. And I think the most notable thing about this is the very sad story that the guy playing Smee, Arnold Soboloff, he, in the middle of a performance, he walked off stage and collapsed in the stage manager's office and died of a heart attack, which is really stressful and sad. Yeah. Died doing what he loved. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... That's professionalism, waiting until the song is over to walk off stage and die. (laughs) (laughs) Really, the show must go on. Do you want to do Tim's Play Corner? Yeah. Welcome Tim, to Tim, Tim's, Play, Tim's Play Corner. Corner. <laughs> I mean, we should make some make a real uh, music track for that. <laughs> this was sort of a similarly nostalgia slash safe year for plays on Broadway. This year, Children of a Lesser God um, really was the play to see, which is a story about a hearing teacher at a deaf school 
who um, falls in love with one of his students who is deaf. Hmm. Um, and it's actually based on the playwright Mark Medoff's relationship with his wife. Hmm. And it was made into a successful movie later on in the 80s um, that won a bunch of Academy Awards. But I think that it has not aged well. No, probably not. But shout out to Marley Matlin. Yeah. <laughs> but what is... Something to note is the two leads of this play. You got John Rubenstein, who was the original Pippin. Ooh. Um, and he basically won every award, you know, like every acting award for the, not every, but he got a few accolades for the role he played. And also Phyllis Freelich, she was the first deaf woman to win a Tony Award for. That, that makes sense. Yeah. I think that we can pretty definitively yeah. say that. <laughs> In this original production and even in the subsequent revival um i think what was kind of the selling point of this play is seeing someone deliver their lines through american sign language is highlighting the difference between you know spoken english language and american sign language is like itself the spectacle of the play yeah, and seeing her, you know, sign her acceptance speech was also very powerful and cool. Yeah. And with Bob Steinberg for sharing so much with me. And most especially with Mark Meadow for writing such a beautiful play for me. Such a wonderful role. Thank you. So that is that. Um, <laughs> But that, yeah, that really took Broadway by storm. The other two plays that people seemed very into this season were Tally's Folly, which was uh, by Lanford Wilson. And he won the Pulitzer Prize this year, but I don't, I think it was more of a career win than any particular achievement with this play. <laughs> um, it's also a play that's, this one has only two characters, but it is, it's kind of, you know, in the vein of I Do, I Do, or like Same Time Next Year, mm -hmm. where it's just like these two <laughs> is that the rain oh yeah i thought it was someone opening the door very slowly like a haunted house <laughs> yeah it's just these two people who you know kind of tell the story of their romance jumping through time and i read about half of it and it was very thornton wilder inspired mm -hmm. and then there is a revival of this play mornings at seven which was what ended up winning best revival and it was written by paul osborne he was asked by rogers and hammerstein and joshua logan to write the book for south pacific he didn't and then he eventually wrote the screenplay for it oh, that's cool that is i think out of all these shows you know it was written in the 30s but i think it's really been the one to withstand the test of time and there is actually a pbs great performances recording of it yeah i was gonna say there's been a more recent revival and yeah it's funny because i feel like this and children of the lesser god were revived pretty recently yeah Oh, it's 2002, so oh, I guess it wasn't that recent. I think that there was even a more recent one. Maybe I'm wrong. If it was, it was not on Broadway. Not on Broadway. But it has been a popular choice for regional community and summer stock theater productions, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> Um, oh, and there weren't that many people who presented as a pair, but my dream threesome would be Mia Farrow and Anthony Perkins. I have a note that I'm like, they are so strange. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a threesome where you would um, get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my other notes are Debbie Allen deserves a Tony, her hat, <laughs> Sandy Duncan is a freak. Andrew Lloyd Webber is so strange. Europeans keep it brief. <laughs> he also Did he say something about how British, people say the British can't write musicals? 
Oh, yes, he does. This has got to be the greatest moment in, I think, both our careers so far. Uh, it's always said the British can't write musicals. We've been trying, and to do it on Broadway, I mean, really, that's all one can ask. And I have to thank everybody very, very much. Thank you. Oh, and um, Helen Hayes gets a nice tribute. She gets a, like a Lifetime Achievement Award, I think, and mm-hmm. she has a really sweet speech. I think it's customary, and I know it's becoming at moments like this, to um, speak with becoming humility, uh, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't feel a bit humble. I feel proud as a lord and 10 feet tall. And then at the end, they sing, I believe they sing I Love New York, which is the state song created for the tourism campaign in 1977, which I'm kind of obsessed with because like ever since I realized that Oklahoma is the state song of Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. I've been like, I have this like weird fixation on state songs and like how they become your state songs. And the fact that like there are so many amazing songs written about New York but their state song is this shitty, like, I love New York, written by an ad agency or whatever, so that they have, like, full rights of it and don't have to pay <laughs> anyone. It's like, that's very New York, I think. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, it was commissioned by the Department of Commerce, and, like, that's where the, you know, I Heart NY logo also comes from, is from that advertising campaign. And so everyone gets up on stage and sings it at the end. They were really trying to make it happen. Yeah, that logo was designed by Milton Glaser, mm-hmm. famed designer. Oh, and Tony Roberts, I think, would be my dream twosome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not that's not the prompt, but I'll accept it. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're doing that, obviously, um, James Earl Jones with his beard. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also liked that there were a lot of ladies in tuxedos tonight. We don't really see that that often. Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> also, I am glad that they, instead of giving Mary Tyler Moore the best actress, uh, Tony, they gave her a special one. Yeah. I think that after doing the research for the second half of this season, I for the plays, I understand what they were doing there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Wow. Well, this is going to be the last episode that we record. Maybe. I mean, the last episode that we record with both of us here. In the same room together. Yeah. Because I'm moving away. We got to figure out how to do this remotely. Don't worry. I mean, by the time this episode comes out, we will have already figured it out <laughs> and have been and be releasing again. But it's really, it's the end of an era. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's very sad. So, okay. So you can, oh, what are we doing next time? Is it 1952? Um, is that the, oh, 51? Yes. For our next episode, we're going to go back. We're just going to do a one episode for this one. We're going to do 1951 because this was before they had nominees. So they just had the winners. I mean, the only real musicals of interest were Guys and Dolls and Call Me Madam. And then you have the Rose Tattoo for plays. That's pretty much it. Nothing else. There's a couple other things. And Ruth Green gets a special Tony for her services as a volunteer in arranging reservation and seating for the five Tony Awards. Aww. <laughs> Man, if you, get, get, if you get in there early enough, you can get a Tony for anything. I know. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, that's just going to be one episode because there's no point in stretching that out. Yeah. So, anyway, you can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can also DM us there and we will respond. Rate us... 
five stars on iTunes, please. I don't think that really does anything. It just makes us feel good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks to all of you for joining all of us in our celebration of the wonder of live theater. Thank you.